sounds pretty good. You'd sign up for that program, right? Somebody said, hey, I've got a 10-step program. You can be the president of the United States. You want to know what they are? I'm sure you do. Here they are. Number one, meet the eligibility requirements, okay? I was born here. Check. Uh, number two, educate yourself and build a political career. Okay, well, I'm not very good on my poli political career right now, so I, I guess I'm, I'm not doing too well right now. Develop a political platform. I definitely don't have one of those because the stage in the pulpit is not a political platform. Number four, join a major political party. Five, raise funds. Six, campaign and win primaries. Seven, secure the party nomination. Eight, run a general election campaign. See, I feel like eight could have been multiple steps. Run the campaign. Just, do, just campaign. Just, that's it. That's one step. Number nine, win the electoral college. Number 10, be sworn in. So there you go. Ten steps to become the president of the United States according to AI. I also asked AI how to become a pastor, and it gave me 12 steps. Ten steps to become the president, 12 steps to become a pastor. They didn't do a bad job. They, the computer, didn't do a bad job. Personal calling and discernment. Okay, we would vouch for that. You'd say, yeah, a pastor should have a personal calling and the discernment to know if this is the right path. Number two, education and theological training. Yeah, you should know the Bible and, and pursue theological training. Number three, denominational affiliation. Well, you're sitting in a non-denominational church, so I think we can probably strike that one out uh, as not nece necessary to being a pastor. Number four, uh, complete seminary or ministry education. Okay, yeah, we should complete that. We should finish what we started. Number five, field experience or an internship, which most pastors have at some point in their life. I did, I know that. Number six, ordination or licensing, meaning you want some other people to be able to say, yeah, this is, we're, we're commissioning this. This is a good thing. We're gonna ordain this person in that role. Number seven, develop pastoral skills. That might need to be before ordination um, to develop the pastoral skills. Preaching, teaching, shepherding, counseling, those things are, are important though. Number eight, seek a pastoral position. Number nine, continue education and growth. Number 10, build a supportive community. Number 11, serve and lead. And number 12, maintain personal and spiritual well-being. So 10 steps to presidency, 12 steps to become a pastor according to AI. I also decided, well, maybe I should ask AI how to be a Christian. That one, it struggled with coming up with the right answer on that one. But thankfully, God's word provides the answer for what it looks like to be a Christian. Our passage this morning provides the answer for what it looks like to be a Christian. As we look at John the Baptist, and you might say, well, wait a minute, was John the Baptist a Christian at this point? And I'll agree with you, no, he wasn't a Christian at this point. He's a Jew at this point, and in fact, he's a Jewish prophet at this point, and he's preparing the way for the coming of the Messiah. But what we see in John's model shows us how radically revolutionary it is for us to come to faith in Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ changes everything about our identity, everything about our position in this life, and everything about our purpose in this life. So take your Bibles and open up to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, we're going to begin in verse 19, and we'll start by going from 19 down to verse 24. John begins, he says, this is the testimony, this is John the Apostle begins, this is the testimony of John the, the Baptist, so two different Johns here. This is the testimony of John the Baptist, when the Jews sent the priests and the Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are, are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? 
He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. John was a unique character. We read about him in Matthew's gospel in verses four through six. It said, now John wore a garment of camel's hair. It would not be comfortable to wear a garment of camel's hair. He wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. We have cicadas out here that are in the trees during the summertime that make a racket, right? Imagine if you were looking at that going, that sounds appealing. I'm going to just grab a a few of those off the tree and and eat those. My guess is not too many of you are are following the John the Baptist diet. There's the Daniel diet plan in the Bible. I haven't seen the, the John the Baptist diet plan written about. Locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So here you've got this random guy who Luke chapter 1 tells us had been in the wilderness until this moment. So nobody really knew who he was, and now he's on the scene. He's dressed weird, eating weird food, and yet everybody's going out to him to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Well, it says that the Jews wanted to know who he was. In John's gospel, when we read the term the Jews, what John is signifying here is those that are opposed to him in his ministry. Those that would be in opposition to him. They're they're the the delegation from so often the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, the, the, the Sadducees. And so they're opposed to what he's doing because they think what he's doing is something uh, disparate or completely different from what they were trying to get Israel to do. And in, in a way it was, but in a way he was really pointing them towards the fulfillment of what Israel was looking for. But they're concerned about this guy that's looking strange, acting strange, baptizing people for the forgiveness of sins. So they send this delegation. Who are you is the question. Now, this was John's opportunity to step into the limelight. He's got the, the, the Pharisees wondering, hey, tell us, who are you? We want to know. Clearly, you're popular. The whole region's going out to you. Who are you? John could have bowed up and, and stepped into the limelight. The, the air was charged with a messianic fervor at this point. And John could have said, man, you, I'm, I'm the guy's cousin. You want an in with him? Come to me. I can get you connected to the Messiah. John could have made this about himself. And yet that's not what he did at all. Look at verse 20. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed. John, the apostle, is emphatic here about John's denial of being the one. They're asking him, are you the Messiah? And rather than stepping into the the fame and the acclaim of men, John is making it clear, John the Baptist, abundantly clear, I am not the Christ. He wants them to know that right off the bat. I'm not the Christ. So their line of questioning continues. What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Well, then you must be the prophet. No, I'm not the prophet either. Who are you? That's the question in this opening section here. John, who are you? They ask about Elijah. Why Elijah? Well, a couple of things. In 2 Kings uh, 2.11, we read this. As they went on and talked, behold, the chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, Elijah from Elisha. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And so there there was this expectation that Elijah would return because Elijah didn't die in the same way that we think of the others who have died. Moses died and Joshua died and David died. You couldn't go to Elijah's tomb because Elijah was simply taken up to be with the Lord. So there was an expectation that Elijah would return, but it wasn't unfounded either because in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, we read this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. 
So there was an expectation that when it came to the end times, the Jewish people were expecting that Elijah would come before Jesus, before the Messiah. Not before Jesus. They didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah, but before the Messiah. So they're there asking John the Baptist, are you the Messiah? No, I'm not the Messiah. Well, then you must be Elijah. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, it says this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. See, a lot of people were connecting uh, the, the prophecy of Malachi chapter 4 about the sending of Elijah with Malachi chapter 3 about the messenger who would prepare the way. And John the Baptist was the messenger who would prepare the way, uh, but they're saying, are you also Elijah? And John is saying no, which is interesting. Verse 6 of Malachi chapter 4 says, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. You know what happened when the angel came to Zechariah and told Zechariah that John was going to be born to him and his wife Elizabeth? The angel quoted Malachi 4.6, that John would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to their fathers. And so was John the Baptist Elijah? That's the question. And it gets a little bit more messy than this because when we go to Matthew chapter 17, verse 12, Jesus said that John the Baptist was Elijah. Elijah has already come. Okay, so then John the Baptist is Elijah. Well, not so fast, because then when we get to Matthew 17, 11, the verse right before that, Jesus said that Elijah was still yet to come. Okay, so John the Baptist is not Elijah. Is he Elijah or is he not Elijah? Yes. Yes. He was a type. Elijah was a type of the anti-type that John partially fulfilled. John was a partial fulfillment of the prophecy that Elijah would come and prepare the way. But the, the Jews were asking, John, are you the one that's preparing the way for the day of the Lord? Is this the time when the kingdom's coming and when the end times is coming and when everything's going to be done and we're going to be restored to Davidic glory and everything else? Are you that fulfillment of the coming of Elijah? And that's why John told them, no, I'm not Elijah. So they said, okay, well then fine, you must be the prophet. Are you the prophet? Well, who is the prophet? The prophet comes from Deuteronomy 18.15. Deuteronomy 18.15. And this was another messianic expectation that this one would precede the Messiah. Deuteronomy 18.15. Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It's him to whom you shall listen. Now, the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18.15 is that Jesus is that prophet. Jesus is the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18.15. But the people of Israel believe that this prophet would precede the coming of the Messiah. So they're asking John, well, then you must be the prophet. You're creating the stir. Who are you? You're not Elijah. You must be the prophet. John says, no, I'm not the prophet. So they return to the question, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. The Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders, they've sent us to find out who you are and why you're doing what you're doing. So John, who are you? He said in verse 23, I am, you want to know who I am? Here I am. I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John said, you want to know a prophecy that I will step into the fulfillment of, and it's Isaiah 40, verse 3. Isaiah the prophet prophesied that there would be one that would come that would prepare the way for the Messiah. And John's saying, yes, that, I'm, I'm that one. I'm just a voice. I'm just a voice saying, get ready for the coming of the Messiah. John knew that his identity was completely and fully connected to Jesus. That everything that mattered about John was informed by who Jesus is. 
And John wanted the people to know that Christ was the most important thing about who he was. And church, we should want everyone to know that Christ is the most important thing about who we are as well. Our first point this morning is this. Surrender your identity to Christ's lordship. Surrender your identity to Christ's lordship. Identity is a buzzword in today's culture, isn't it? What do I choose to identify by? What do I want to identify by? In fact, the, the issue at hand, the, the label that's out there that has to do with this identity crisis, so to speak, is the label dysphoria. And there's different kinds of dysphoria. The most common one that we hear about today is gender dysphoria. But dysphoria is defined this way. It's a state of unease or dissatisfaction with life. A state of unease or dissatisfaction with life. And what's heartbreaking is to see so much of, of our world, and so especially so many of our young people, struggling with that concept, saying, I'm not happy with who I am. And so they think that the answer is going to be found on, by, by changing their identity to something else on a sinking ship. Imagine, if you will, being on the Titanic. And you've got a spot on the lifeboat. You've got a life preserver on and, and you're ready to go and you, you come across somebody and you know, hey, there's, there's one more spot on this lifeboat and you've got the life jacket in your hands for one more person. And you happen to come across the ship's cook and you're talking to the ship's cook and you say, you know what, I've, I've got this life preserver, come with me, come get on the boat. And the cook says, you know, I've never really felt like a cook. I, I just, I, I, they, when I signed up for this, they... They were hiring people that just gave me a cook's uniform and said, you're a cook. And I've, I've had to live as a cook on this ship for so long. I'm just tired of being a cook. I don't want to be a cook anymore. I've always wanted to be a bellhop. I feel, I felt like a bellhop my whole life. And I've had to be a cook instead. Imagine you're holding out the life preserver as the boat is going down, saying, what are you talking about? You need this. This ship is sinking. You're going to die. You need the life preserver. The life preserver gives you access to the boat. I know where the boat is. Come with me and get on the boat. I've got the life preserver. And meanwhile, the cook is looking at you going, no, this is my chance because I, I passed by an empty room and I saw there's a bellhop uniform in there. I want to go put on the bellhop uniform and I want to go get some people's luggage and, and help their luggage to the lifeboats as they're way on, on their way off the boat. What are you talking about? Why do you want to do that? Because I, I've always felt like I wanted to be a, a, a bellhop and not a cook. It's an absurd illustration, but that's what our world is doing right now. The ship is sinking, and we're playing different roles on a sinking ship. This idea of dysphoria is, is the, the main problem of it is what we're talking about here is we live in a world that has not done this and that refuses to do this. That says, I don't want Jesus. I don't want to surrender my identity to Christ. I don't want everything about me to be about him. John was saying at this point, everything important about me is what's important about Jesus. Jesus is, is everything you need to know about who I am. Who are you, John? I am his servant. What does being in Christ change about our identity? Well, just that. Consider this passage from Galatians, if you will. Galatians 1.10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be, and here's the, the identity here, a servant of Christ. That's so often how Paul introduced himself in his letters, right? Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. 
Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. That's part and parcel with our identity. And so here's a challenge for us this week. As we think about this idea of surrendering our identity to Christ, I want you to consider doing this. Take an index card. Now, you may not have index cards at home, but if you don't, you can go to Staples and pick them up or CVS. Get a package of index cards. And here's the challenge this week. I want you to write on it, servant of Jesus. And I want you to tape it to your bathroom mirror this week. And I want you to tape it not just to your bathroom mirror, but I want you to write another one, Servant of Jesus. And I want want you to tape it to your car's dashboard this week. And not only to your bathroom mirror and your car's dash, but I want you to take another one. I want you to tape it to your desk in your office and have it say Servant of Jesus right there on your desk. Take another one and tape it on your, your nightstand. It says Servant of Jesus. Take another one, tape it on the door to your house from your garage so that when you come home, you walk in that door and you see on that door, servant of Jesus. Take another one and tape it to your microwave. So it says servant of Jesus right there above your microwave. Take another one and tape it to your dining room table. So it says servant of Jesus. Take another card, tape it to your laptop, servant of Jesus. Take another one and tape it underneath your TV that says, servant of Jesus. Why? Because this identity that we are servants of Christ is the identity that transcends every other role in your life. Everything about who you are, you are in relation to your primary role as a servant of Jesus. When we come to faith in Christ, that's what we become. We become servants of Jesus. When you meet someone for the first time, a question for you, how long does it take you to get to Jesus when you're introducing yourself? Before you start to talk to someone about your relationship with Christ. I think so often we'll say, well, this is who I am. Here's my name, which is good. That's helpful. This is what I do. This is my family. This is where I live. But when do we get to Jesus? Is he important? Is he that crucial to who we are? I want you to think this morning, what's the most important thing about you? And everybody has the church Sunday school answer in their mind right now. I know Jesus, but if someone were to ask you the question, who are you? Maybe you'd say, I'm a a husband. I'm a wife. I'm a student. I'm a single. Maybe you would say, this is what my job is. Maybe you would say, you know what? This is how old I am. That's part of my identity. Maybe you would say, this is my family. That's part of my identity. All those different roles, all those different characteristics, all those different things that you would say, this is who I am. Now I want you to think about this verse in Colossians. Colossians 1.18. He, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That word preeminent means to hold first place. To hold first place. So that means as you go back through those things that are most important about who you are, if somebody were to ask you, who are you? And you were to say, this is who I am. And you were to describe yourself. What Colossians 1.18 tells us and what John understood is that Jesus has first place in everything else about you. That means as a husband, you are first and foremost a servant of Christ as a husband. As a wife, a servant of Christ, as a, as a wife. As a child, a servant of Christ, as a child. As a student, a servant of Christ, as a student. As a single person, a servant of Christ, as a single person. As an employer, a servant of Christ, a servant of, in, in every single facet. He's not just first every day before you get to the rest of that. He's first in all of it, all day long. 
Jesus is your whole identity. And coming to faith in Christ, what it means to be a Christian is to surrender that identity fully to Christ. And so men, I want you to think about this scenario. You come home from work and you pull into your driveway and you sit there in your car and you think about walking into that house to be a husband and to go be a dad. And here's the thing I want you to think about this week when you do that. You pull into that driveway, you get out of that car and you walk into that house as a husband, as a dad, as a servant of Christ foundationally. Ladies, maybe you walk to get your kids when they're getting off the bus this week. And you're thinking as you're walking to go get those kids as they're coming off the bus, all of the things that you're going to need to do with them. You've got to get home. They've got to unpack lunchboxes. You've got to have them get a snack. And then you've got to make sure that they're ready for school the next day. So maybe you're repacking the lunch to go in the fridge for tomorrow. Water bottles got to be emptied and refilled. And then you've got to talk about homework. And you've got to think about what's coming up that night, whether there's a soccer practice or there's a choir practice or there's something else. But ladies, here's the thing. I want you to think as you walk to the bus to pick up your kids as they get off the bus, or maybe you walk to the school to go do that, that you are going to do all of those things foundationally and fundamentally, first and foremost, as a servant of Jesus. Singles, maybe you come home from work and you walk in the house and it's been a long day because you've been working hard and you've put in a long day with many hours. You've been looking forward to coming home. You've been looking forward to your TV. You've been looking forward to social media. You've been looking forward to maybe even having somebody over to your house that night to hang out with them and spend some time with them. You're looking forward to a good dinner that you're going to have. All of those things. Next time that happens this week, I want you to think that all of those things you're about to participate in when you get home, you participate in first and foremost and foundationally as a servant of Jesus. That's why the challenge to tape those things up throughout our house. Because if we don't, we'll get lost in the busyness of life this week. And our identity will become who we are at work, who we are at home, who we are by ourselves. And we'll forget that that's first and foremost and fundamentally informed by Jesus. John was asked, who are you? He said, it doesn't matter who I am. I'm a voice. I'm a voice preparing the way for Jesus. John understood the most important thing about his identity was Jesus, and that's what we need to understand as well. But they weren't satisfied with that. They, they press in. The Jews do in verse 25. They, they, they keep the line of questioning going. Then why are you doing what you're doing? If you're just a voice, if you're not Elijah, you're not the prophet, and you're not the Messiah, why are you baptizing? See, what John was doing was claiming a certain degree of authority. Who are you to be able to baptize for the forgiveness of sins then? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These, took place, these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. What are you doing, John? There's a backstory here that we don't get in John's gospel, but back in Matthew's gospel, we do get this. And that is, as everybody was coming out to John to be baptized by him, some of the Pharisees came out as well. And John, John wasn't interested in winning friends with the Pharisees at this point. Matthew 3, 7 said, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? John is a seeker-sensitive baptizer, isn't he? 
come on in. Everybody's welcome. You know, you brood of vipers. So already the Pharisees are, are not too keen of, of John, but they can't deny he's doing something that people are paying attention to. But they're, they're saying, then whose authority are you doing this in? Who do you think you are? Again, John had the opportunity to flex here. He could have made it about himself. He's already done the humble thing and said, well, I'm not Jesus, so don't get me confused with him. He could have bowed up and said, I'm the one, I'm the prophet that, that Isaiah prophesied about. I, I'm his cousin. You want in? Man, I've been in family reunions with this guy. We played kickball together growing up. Like, I know him. You want to know Jesus? You want to know the Messiah? I can get you in with him. John could have bowed up again. John could have been about building his platform, his position. But again, that's not him. What authority do you have? He doesn't answer the question. He doesn't answer the question they ask. He answers the question that they should have asked. Who are you pointing us to? He says, yeah, I'm here. I'm baptizing with water. Forget that for a second. There's somebody else that's standing among you who you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Even he who comes after me. Jesus was younger than John in Jewish society. That would have put John in a position greater than Jesus within the familial structure and the cultural structure. But John's saying, there's this one that stands among you who's younger than I am even. But you know what? I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandal. What does that mean, to untie his shoe? Well, in ancient Israel, that, that was a role, that was a task that was reserved for one of the most menial household slaves. It was a, a role, think to the upper room and washing the feet of the disciples, right? That was a task reserved for the lowest of the lowest in the household slaves. Same thing with untying somebody's sandal. During this time, the, the Jewish rabbis, and Jesus was a, a Jewish rabbi during this season of his ministry that he was about to step into, uh, the, the Jewish rabbi's disciples would perform many of the tasks of a, a servant for their master, for their teacher. And so they would accompany him and they would serve him much in the way a, a household servant would for their, their master. But even there, even still, even in that context, there was an ancient rabbinical saying that said this, Every service which a slave performs for his master shall a disciple do for his teacher except the loosening of his sandal straps. So even a, a, a normal disciple to a teacher wouldn't stoop so low with that teacher as to untie his shoe. John says, there's one among you who you do not know who came after me, who's younger than me, who positionally, ranks lower than I would according to our culture and society. But you know what? I'm not even worthy to do the most menial household task for this one. I wouldn't even consider myself worthy enough to untie his shoe. This is humility from John, isn't it? It seems that this was at least enough for them to leave because the next thing that we read is the next day in verse 29. The next day, the, the, the action picks up and Jesus comes along to John and, and John sees Jesus coming towards him and, and he, with anyone in earshot, says, behold, this is the one. This is him of whom I've been telling you about. Behold, look, see, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. John understands so much about Jesus here. Yes, he's younger than me, but he ranks before me because he was before me. John understanding the eternality, John understanding the de deity even of Jesus. 
This is the promised one. He is the one that you should go to. Go after him. I myself, I did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing. This is why I'm here. This is why I exist, that he might be revealed to Israel. John's statement there, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's so commonplace for us, isn't it? We hear it, we think about it, and and we read it through the post-cross lens. And we think to ourselves, okay, well, sure, yeah. He was the sacrificial lamb, substitutionary atonement. He's the Passover lamb. All of these things. We go back to Genesis 22 with the ram cotton. That's Jesus. But what did John know about any of that at this point? There's some different points of of view out there, some some different thoughts on this. The the first one being that maybe John was thinking that Jesus was the, the Passover lamb. And that's what he meant. Behold, the the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Well, that goes back to the Passover event. The problem with that is John connects the Lamb with he who takes away the sins of the world. The Passover was not meant to remove sin. That was a sacrifice that was just meant to take the place of. It was substitutionary, but not to take away sin. And John is connecting the lamb to the one who takes away sin. So probably not the, the Passover lamb. Well, maybe it was Jeremiah eleven nineteen, which talks about, again, a gentle lamb led to slaughter, anticipating the coming of the Messiah. Problem again being we don't have anything about sin being taken away here in this passage. Okay, well, is there a third option? How about Leviticus 16? Now we're getting sin taken away because you had the two goats in Leviticus 16 at the Day of Atonement. You had the scapegoat and the priest would confess over the goat all of the sins of of the nation of Israel. And then the goat was sent out into the wilderness to carry the sins away from the people. And another goat was executed, lost its life. Its blood was shed because the wages of sin is death. Maybe John was thinking about the Day of Atonement, but the problem with that is he uses the word lamb and not goat. Okay, well then, if it's not that, maybe it is Genesis 22. You remember Abraham's getting ready to sacrifice Isaac and and he's got the the knife in hand above his head and God says, stop, and he provides a ram as a substitution for Isaac. We get the substitution there, but we don't get the taking away the sin. So again, I don't think that's quite it. Okay, well then, maybe it's Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. And what lends credence to this in some people's minds is the the word for lamb and servant in Aramaic is the same word. It can either be translated lamb or servant. So they're thinking, well, maybe this is what John meant. He was thinking back to Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, we get the lamb and we get the substitutionary atonement, the removal of sins. Maybe it was Isaiah 53. Maybe, but the problem is this in our Greek text is not in Aramaic. It's in Greek and there was a different word for servant from lamb in the Greek. So if John said servant, not lamb, why would John the apostle translate it as lamb still as he translates it into the Greek? All right, well then maybe it's Revelation 7. The apocalyptic lamb. John, after all, was the one who would write Revelation 7, John the Apostle. Maybe John the Baptist understood. And there was a, a, a future sense and a hope from the, the point of view of the Jewish people of this eschatological warrior lamb. That was there in some of their writings and anticipations. But again, it doesn't fully fit the context. So then what was John after? I think what John was after was a, a reality that, he really, even himself, didn't fully understand. See, I think John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, spoke better than he understood here. And what he's saying is a foretelling of of what Jesus would do. Was Jesus the Lamb who would take away the sins of the world? Absolutely, 100% he was. Did John fully understand what that meant as he said those words? No. Do we now, looking back, yes, we do. But John's point here was to exalt Christ. 
This is the one who comes before me, who ranks before me, even though he came after me. John is about exalting Jesus. I think at this point, none of us should be unclear as to what John was all about. He was all about Christ, all about identifying with Christ, all about exalting Jesus, all about deflecting every ounce of glory to Jesus. That was John's model for us here as the Pharisees and others wanted to know. He's trying to get people to follow him. It's all about him. He's seeking to reflect all of the glory back on Christ. And as we think about what it looks like to be a Christian, John provides a good example in that for us as well as we think about point number two this morning. Surrender not just your identity, but also your glory to the Lordship of Christ. Surrender your glory to the Lordship of Christ. There's a, an old song, older song by Toby Mac. You guys know Toby Mac, right? And the, the song is called Steal My Show. And there's a line in the, the song, it's one of the main lines in the song that says, if you want to steal my show, I'll sit back and watch you go. And at first you listen to it and you go, okay, that's cool. Like he, he doesn't want this, Jesus gets the, to steal the, the spotlight. There, there, all, all due respect to Mr. Toby Mac, but there's a massive part wrong with that song. It's not our show to begin with, right? Jesus isn't stealing anything when he gets the glory. It's the inverse. The problem is when we're stealing the glory, when we're making it about us and not about him. And so if you want to steal my show, no, it's like if, if, if you want to just put me in my place and take back what's yours, like you, this is your show, Jesus. You should be the one in the front and center. Man, but that's just not what our world thinks, is it? I mean, think about our world and, and what we run into in our world. Here's this, have it your way, which if you're doing that, you're doing it wrong, okay? Can we just talk about this? Like Burger King's thinking that this is a good idea, it's a legitimate ad. I don't even, I don't think that's legitimate meat in the center burger there. All those pickles, all those onions, yeah, they're not doing it right. Have it your way, or how about this one? The, the army, be all what? Be all you can be. In the army, you guys remember the, 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 the song, right? The, it's drilled into you, grown up. Be all you can be in the army. We're here to maximize you. It's about you. It's about your role. Man, you want to excel? You want to be able to, to get training? You want to lead people? Let's make you a leader. Let's make it about who you are. Let's cater to that. Or how about this brand right here? What is the, what is the tagline? Come on. Nike, Nike which, what, what do they say? Just, just do it. Yes, exactly. That, that's it. Well, who just do it? You. Why? So that you can be like Mike. So that you can be like LeBron. Just do it. Glorify yourself. Get the spotlight for yourself. Or how about ladies? How about this one? L'Oreal Paris, because you're worth it. Because you're worth it. This is the world we, we live in. So when we say something like, man, we need to surrender our glory to Christ's lordship, that bumps into the world that we live in really fast. We also live in the world of self-affirmation, don't we? Here's some self-affirmation phrases that I found just with a quick Google search this week. A guy named Ram Das, D-A-S-S, -S, calls himself a, a spiritual psychologist, and he says this, you are loved just for being who you are, just for existing. You are loved just for being who you are, just for existing. Or there's this one from Michelle Obama. Am I good enough? Yes, I am. 
Or how about this one from Oprah? Good riddance to decisions that don't support self-care, self-value, and self-worth. You want to know John's self-affirmation? Here's his self-affirmation. I'm here for Jesus, and I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. Nobody's going to tweet that. It's not going to be on anybody's branding. And honestly, it's a strange paradox for us, and you may be feeling the tension right now, because aren't I created in the image of God? Yes. And aren't I adopted as a son or daughter of God through Jesus? Yes. And didn't God so love the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life? Yes. Aren't I the, the object of his affection and his grace and his mercy? Yes. And so we hold this paradox and this tension out in, in work in our lives where we have to think of ourselves in, in light of that and yet also the reality that we have to, to remember is that none of that ultimately is about us. It's ultimately about him. You were saved for the glory of God. You were saved for the glory of Jesus. You were saved so that your life might cause people to go, what changed about you and why are you the way you are? And you can say, thank you for asking, it's Jesus. He has changed everything. Let's think about it this way. Maybe you're a lawyer and maybe you go into the courtroom on a regular basis and, and you argue your case before a judge and a jury. Uh, here's the thing. This is what Jesus does to us. In Christ now, you're not there to win an argument. You're not there to win a case. You're not there to win the judge or the jury. You're not there to convince anyone. You're not there foundationally for any of those reasons. You're there to exalt Christ through all of those things. So does... Jesus make you a better lawyer? Yes. Does Jesus make you a better doctor? Yes. Does he make you a better CEO? Yes. Does he make you a better mom? Yes. Does he make you a better dad? Yes. Why? How? Because now there's a new significance to all of those things that you're doing. You're not a doctor to be the best doctor that you can be. You're a doctor to exalt Christ through everything that you do. Every, every ounce of effort that you put in when you go into the office, when you, that patient walks into the room and sits on that table, you're not just there to make sure that you give them a thorough checkup and that they're healthy and that they've got a game plan for their health when they leave. Yes, you should do those things, but you're there to do all those things because you love Jesus and want to glorify him with everything that you do in life. You see, so often we compartmentalize this part of surrendering our glory to Christ's lordship by, by saying, well, yeah, we do that when we come to church and we worship him and we praise him and we sing these worship songs to him. Or we do that when we share the gospel with someone. And, and yes, that's true. But it's not just there. It's every facet of your life like we talked about in point one. As your dad, as your husband, as your wife, as your father, as you're a single person, as you're a student, as you're an attorney, as you're a doctor. Whatever it is, everything that you do, is meant to be done to exalt Jesus, to glorify Christ. Parents, we need this in the home. We need this message to, to be delivered to your kids. Your home needs to be a place where Christ is exalted on a regular basis, where he is given the glory for the good things and celebrated for those victories. Y'all, this is the point. This is the key to point number one. If we're going to surrender our identity, we have to start by surrendering our glory. It can't be about us. It's got to be about him. Glorifying Christ. 
That's what John was there to do. And in verse 30, he says very plainly, he says, look, this is why I came baptizing in order to, to point everybody to this one. Verse 31, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And now John's saying, and now he's here. John's purpose was about pointing people to Jesus. Verse 32, John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and become witness that this is the son of God. John said, I myself did not know him. They were cousins. How did John not know him? Well, he did. But what John's saying here is until the baptism of Christ, which is at this point in time in the rearview mirror, but Jesus has already been baptized by John. John's saying until the baptism of Jesus, he didn't fully know who Jesus was. But when the spirit descended and rested upon Christ, the light bulb went on for John the Baptist. And he was like, this is the one. This is whom I, who I'm here for. My whole purpose in life is about this one and exalting him and pointing people to him. The word witness appears six times in these first 34 verses in John chapter one, every single time in reference to John the Baptist. He is a witness. He's there to bear witness and he's there to bear witness to Jesus. Jesus was the one he had been waiting for. In fact, Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecy that his, his dad spoke over him. If you go back to Luke chapter one, uh, verses 76 through 79, Luke records there that Zechariah said this, you child speaking to John the Baptist as an infant, you will be called the prophet of the most high for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. Jesus now was there. Jesus was on the scene. John saw it confirmed with the spirit descending on him at the baptism and now he knew that his whole purpose in life was to point people to Jesus and church, that's our purpose as well. Our final purpose, our final point this morning is this. Surrender your, that's the word, purpose to Christ's lordship. Your identity, your glory, and finally your purpose. And all of these things are interrelated and connected to each other. But in Christ, we surrender all of our purposes in life to him. I just talked about your purpose as a doctor might be to treat a patient well. Yes, but there's a bigger purpose, a greater purpose, and that is that you would exalt Christ in doing that. Think about D-Day for a minute, if you will. I've been watching a, a lot of videos on YouTube because I'm a, a nerd about D, the D-Day history and, and this guy that's been going to all the different sites and everything and talking a lot about the 101st Airborne. Think about those men on that day getting in that plane, taking off from the tarmac, flying out, getting ready to leave. I, imagine being on that plane and going up to those men and asking them one by one, hey, what's your purpose? They've got anti-aircraft fire going all over the place. The plane is shaking and rattling from it and they're about to jump out into the, the sky with a parachute. Do you think they knew their purpose? Do you think they understood the objective? Do you think they understood that the stakes were high? You think they still nonetheless had a conviction that ran deep in them? Church, we need to know what our purpose is. Likewise, somebody comes up to you, what's your purpose? Why do you get out of bed in the morning? What are you doing with your life? 
Christ needs to be foundational there. I encouraged our setup team a couple of weeks ago because we get here, and I know it's a shocker, but this is a gym that you're in right now. It's not a church. Well, it is a church right now, but it's the rest of the week it's a gym. No, but I was encouraging our setup team as we were getting it ready for this. I was like, look, guys, there's significance. There's purpose in every chair that you set out because somebody's going to come and sit in that chair. And maybe it's a visitor. Maybe they're going to come and they're going to sit in that chair for the first time this week and they're going to listen to the sermon and, and worship and they're going to be with, there with their family and you are serving them through putting that chair in place. There's a purpose there. It's bigger than, well, we need chairs to sit in. It's deeper than we need chairs to sit in. We need a stage for things to be higher. <laughs> I mentioned earlier, this life is not about us. That's what we're talking about here. There's a deeper purpose. There's a deeper purpose to what we're doing. And so what is your purpose this morning? What's the purpose in your job? Whatever job you have. What ultimately are you doing there? Why are you doing it? What's the purpose of your parenting? How does glorifying Christ, exalting Christ come through there? What's the purpose of your education? Those of you who are still in school, why? What's the purpose of your investments? Why do you have your finances invested where they are? What's the purpose of your retirement? What's the purpose of your marriage? Why are you married? Maybe some of you carry a, a paper planner around with you during the week or a, a to-do list on your phone. Can I encourage you? to redeem those items this week with every single time you open it up to write something down new to ask yourself, what's the purpose of why I'm doing what I'm doing? I'm gonna put a reminder in my phone. What's the purpose? Why am I putting this reminder in my phone? What's the purpose of accomplishing this task and how does it relate to my relationship to Jesus? I'm setting a meeting on my calendar this week. I'm gonna ask myself, what's the purpose of this meeting that I'm gonna have this week and how does it relate to my identity with Jesus? How's Christ gonna be exalted through this thing this week? Because nothing you do is divorced from your identity as a Christian. Nothing you do is, is divorced from the purpose that God has for you as a Christian. We surrender our purpose to Christ's lordship when we come to faith in Jesus. What does it mean to be a Christian? How can I be a Christian? There's more than what we talked about this morning, but these are three foundational elements to it. Surrendering our identity, surrendering our glory, and surrendering our purpose. And I think John lived that out well and set that example for us, for us to hopefully follow after. How to be a Christian. Don't ask ChatGPT or any of the other AI bots out there. You want to know how to be a Christian, start with the word of God. Get connected, get involved in the church, be a part of a, a church family like this and watch what God does. I'm going to pray and our team's going to come up for our closing. God, we thank you so much for Christ and how he has transformed literally everything about our lives. We thank you that who we are is not, Lord, chiefly uh, our job or our income or our marital status or our family status or anything else. God, who we are is primarily and chiefly about Christ. 
And Lord, we live this life not to exalt ourselves. We live this life not to put ourselves forward, but to put Christ forward as the ultimate one, the one worthy of everything, all glory, all honor, all prestige. God, we live this life not in our own strength, but even in the strength of the spirit that you provide for us, that we might walk in faithfulness to you, that we might do what we even talked about this morning. These are big things. These are difficult things. Admittedly, they they grate against our flesh and certainly they contradict the message of the world. To surrender anything is not what we're called to do by those in the world that would say this is what it looks like to be happy and successful. So God, even to embrace this mindset to say, yes, I want to do that. I want to yield my identity, yield my, my glory and yield my purpose to you is something that you have to work within us first through your spirit. And so God, I pray that you would do that this morning, this week for us. Give us conviction. Give us a mindset to live as servants of Christ in all that we do. Understanding every role that we perform, every task that we do is an expression of that identity, that we are your servants, that we've been redeemed by you, bought by you through the blood of Christ. So now we want to glorify you with everything that we do. And so God, we pray that that would be true of us this week, that we would live this, this week with our lives that bear witness that say, yet not I, but through Christ in me. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Amen.